Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 88. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, I have a very, very special guest, legendary juggler, Mr. Dieter Tasso. That's right, over a 65-year career, and I'll talk about it all today on the Drop Everything Podcast. Before we get to Dieter, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. You can find out about this great group of jugglers at juggle.org. Okay, a couple of more announcements. You can buy Dieter Tasso's book, You Like It, I Do It Again, at Amazon.com. All right, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Mr. Dieter Tasso. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 88. My special guest, legendary juggler, Mr. Dieter Tasso. Welcome, Dieter. Yeah, I'm happy to be with you. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Well, what a pleasure to speak with you, sir. You've had such an amazing career. And uh, I think you have the record as being our oldest guest. Because you're now at 86. Is that correct, sir? 86? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I would still be working, but uh, I got sick at 82, 82 and a half. And I got sick with uh, arthritis of my whole body, and uh, I just had to stop. I had no choice. Let's go way, way back. Let's start at the very beginning. You have such a long career and such a long history. Let's talk about your, your boyhood in Germany and how you first discovered juggling. If you don't mind, could you tell me a little about your parents and what kind of a juggling act they did before you were born? Yeah, my father and mother, they were both jugglers. They had to give it up early because of, at the time, it was between wars, between the First War and the Second World War. And it was getting difficult. And matter of fact, uh, my mother got pregnant with her first child, and they couldn't go on the road anymore, so they had to stop that. Uh, my father started all over again in private business. He went to the post office. He was always telling me he started with the shovel, so to speak, from the beginning. And uh, he made it all the way up to be um, a pretty good uh, uh, situation. His job was like a beamta, whatever that means. That was a, he made pretty good money and all that. But then Hitler came and uh, uh, changed the whole situation. And did they juggle around the house? Do you remember there being juggling at the house? Oh, yeah, that's it. Uh, when I was at home and there was always flying uh, clubs and, and rings and it was flying all over the place. And if I didn't get out of the way, uh, <laughs> I had it on my back, on my head. I, I had to be careful and uh, they screamed at me constantly, get the heck out of here, you know. Yeah, they were practicing even after they didn't work anymore. My father did some private shows afterwards, too, at, at the post office, uh, at the uh, happenings over there. And uh, so he, they kept practicing. And, and I had an older brother, his name was Werner, uh, poor guy. He just passed away not too long ago in Belgium. He lived his whole life in Belgium. And he was starting to juggle. And uh, actually, the family always thought that he was going to be the one to follow my in my father's footstep, but uh, he didn't. He stopped too, and he started to be a carpenter when, when the time came to learn the profession. What kind of props were they using? Clubs and balls? Very large clubs, because my father and my uncle, my, I had a very famous juggling uncle in the business. His name was King Rep. 
he had a pretty good name in the business. He was like a semi-star. He was like you guys were in the business, you know. The when the star, uh, his name was on top, then he was underneath. He was mentioned underneath King Grab uh, and uh, King Grab and another guy and my father and my uncle. They all did a two, four people together. They did a, a club passing act. I guess what you call. Uh, and they were pretty good. They put the the. the Cast the clubs over the shoulder and over the back, and and and, uh, and they're pretty famous in the business for a while. Your other uncle was named Little Knox. Is that correct, Little Knox? Yeah, that was my uncle. Yeah, he was uh, one of the oldest brothers, and, and my father was the youngest brother from all of those guys. I think there were eight brothers, but some of them died very early. And my uncle Otto. Uh, his name was Little Knox in the business. He did a comedy juggling act, and he was uh, pretty steady. He never made stardom or anything like this. He he played little clubs and done variety shows and all, but uh, he was pretty steady. Uh, and he was the one in Berlin that I uh, wanted to go to and learn the, the business later on when I was 14 years old when I came out of school. Now, was he a talking actor or just a more of an eccentric juggler, Little Knox? No, he didn't talk. He didn't talk. Just, uh, as they call it, a dumb act, right? Yeah, it's not really a very used term, but dumb act, silent act. Yeah, silent act, yeah. Now, King Rep, I have a poster of King Rep at my house. He's yeah. doing a very eccentric shake with all these balls and hoops. Was that one of his signature moves with the, like, eight or nine hoops with balls yeah. in them? That was, a, that was a pretty good trick. He always told me about it. Matter of fact, he gave me that trick. He mm. said, when, when when you got time to come to Berlin, all my props is over there. You got all my props. He gave me. And that's where the colored top hats came from, too. I used colored top hats in my act, the red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. And he kind of invented them. But th this particular trick was laying in Berlin and was waiting for me to pick it up. But it was East Berlin, and I, I couldn't make it back there. And uh, then the, the government kind of took over and uh, took it away from the guy who had it. His name was Von Prix. He, he was like a collector. And he had the props from King Grab, and uh, it got lost along the way. Who knows where it is now? And the balls, they were illuminated in some way? Did they light up in the hoops? Yes, they did light up. Yeah, yeah. First, he got them all rolling, and he said it wasn't easy. The the, the worst, the, the toughest one was the one on the back, mm -hmm. because he had one on the back, he had one on top on a, a top hat, then he had one in a cigar, and he had them. He had to start them out individually, because it wasn't easy until he had them all going. And the last one was on the feet, on on one foot rather. <laughs> then he jumped. He jumped off the dinner lights got out and, and they, they lit up and he jumped uh, he kind of hop, hobbled off the stage with them. Yeah, he had these hoops connected to his body, like on his foot, his knee, like you're saying, on a cigar, on the top hat, in each hand. And inside every hoop right. was a ball, kind of like the Salerno ring, where the ball would go inside, the, but he just held them in his hands and got them all spinning at once, would hop across the stage. A very eccentric, uh, humorous. Was it humorous at the time he did it? Did people find it funny, that trick? No, not really. It was it was more like a like a amazing trick. That's mm. it. So at thirteen, you went to live with your uncle, Little Knox. What kind of uh, training and practice did he have you do? Well, first of all, uh, they never had any kids. My uncle and aunt, and they didn't really want to take me. They didn't. Uh, but 
I wanted to be a juggler. I don't know. I had that in my mind uh, since my father passed away and all that. And I was alone in a military school. He sent me to a military school uh, on the end of the war. Well, actually, two two years before the war ended, he sent me to a military school in Bavaria. And all that time when I was down there, and then the war was finished in '45. They dissolved the military school and they sent us all on the farms. So we kids, it was 150 kids, they were under 14. And when I was on the farm there, I always picked up sticks and, and stones and stuff like this. And I kept chuckling, I kept chuckling. It was in my mind. When I came back to Berlin, I wanted to come back to Berlin, which was a big mistake because uh, Bavaria, where I was located down there, it was the American sector. And we already had uh, chocolates and, and food and everything. And my uncle lived in East Berlin. Berlin was uh, in several parts, the Russian sector, English, the French, and the American. Those were four sectors. And he was in the Russian sector. And we had hardly anything to eat over there, you know, and stupid me. But I didn't think, and you're young, you know, and you're 13 years old, 12 years old. You don't think about those things. You know, I just had that chuckling on my mind. So I went to go back to him and... Uh, it was kind of tough uh, to pick up a kid in that age. He eats a lot, you know, and <laughs> there was nothing to eat. <laughs> and did he uh, first refuse to teach you because he thought you had no talent? Like he thought you had no potential? Yeah, when they finally decided to keep me, it uh, was more his, uh, my aunt's uh, decision. And they finally decided to keep me. They said, all right, there are a couple of balls here. I'll put a stick on your head there. See what <laughs> and I had no talent whatsoever. I mean, I put that stick up there and it just bing, went down again. <laughs> And certainly, I was just, uh, I got to admit it myself, I was terrible. And he said, uh, he always said, you can be a shoemaker. Uh, that's like an expression in German, you know, a schuster. <laughs> you can be a shoemaker, but right. but not a, you know. And he always kept telling me, yeah, you can be a shoemaker. Get the heck out of here, so to speak. And I got up at night and secretly practiced for nights at a time so that he can see I do have a little talent because it did get better after a while. And after about six weeks or eight weeks of doing that, uh, he said, all right, you can stay. Okay, I'll try to teach you something. <laughs> That's how it started. And, and what did you start with? Because you, your specialties are the boxes, the top hats, and the cups. What were your first props? They came much later. Uh, he had clubs and rings and balls. And that's what I practiced with. And he had a tennis racket and uh, devil sticks, you know, two sticks and mm -hmm. a tennis racket in the middle. And I practiced that stuff. And I practiced balls. Um, later on, I did up to seven balls is what I learned. And I practiced over the bed at night or in the daytime. So they don't hear me. Uh, I don't make much noise. So I started with balls, actually, what I did. And then on rings, we passed six rings with each other. And then we passed, uh, we took three clubs away from each other, you know, mm -hmm. going around each other, take the hat and then the rings and then the clubs and then the, the hat again. It was our first trick on stage. And what jugglers were you watching? Do you have any contemporaries that you would watch and admire? I mean, did you get to see oh. uh, Francis Brunn and Rudy Horn? Who, who were the jugglers that you looked up to when you were a younger man? Well, you know, this is this is weird, but that's the two jugglers I never saw. Francis Brunn and Rudy Horn I never saw. But we did have the Friedrichstadt Palace, the palace in Berlin. It was a variety show, and they changed the uh, acts every month. They had a new program every month. And for one mark, which was like a dollar or even less, you could sit at the last row way up there. There was a theater of 3,000 seats. Mm. 
And you said the last row up there, that's all I could afford, the one mark, you know, to get that last seat up there. And I went in there and I watched everyone. And there was a, every other month there was a jerkler in there. You know, there was Siki Manulescu, there was uh, Woody, Woody Schweitzer mm-hmm. was there. And uh, no, there wasn't Woody Schweitzer, it was Albert Schweitzer, his, his uncle before. Woody didn't even exist yet in those years. I'm talking about 48, 49. Uh, they, those guys came later. Chris Cremo came much later. Did you know his father, Bella Cremo? Yes, I saw Bella Cremo. He was amazing, this guy. He had a personality that never ended. Hmm. It was something else. One time, a little story about Bella Cremo. I was driving, uh, I was traveling in, in the States here between bookings, and I stopped in a bar to get some beer, and the television was on, and the Ed Sullivan show was on. And nobody paid attention to the television. The whole bar was full, full of people, but nobody paid attention to it until a juggler came on. And I didn't know who it was, but he did balls, he did hats, he did cigar boxes. And all of a sudden, after about two, three minutes, the whole bar was paying attention to the damn juggler over there. You know, <laughs> and I realized it was Bela Cremo. And I was so proud when I left the place that nobody paid attention to the Atzili one show until the juggler came on, you know. And, and it, he stopped the show, so to speak, you know. He was great. Well, as a juggler, it's always nice to see another juggler do well. It's always nice that someone represents juggling to the public and the public likes it because we're all jugglers together and, and it's important for everybody to make a good impression, you know. Well, in those years, I looked up to them, you know, Bella Cremo and all those. They was like my half-god, you know. What about uh, Serge Flash? Do you know that name, Serge Flash? I know the name, but I never seen him. Did anybody stand out? Did you ever see uh, someone and say that one's the best? I mean, Bella Cremo, but anybody really, really knock your socks off? Well, Bella Cremo was excellent. Yeah, was a good friend of mine. Uh, he was at the Lido when I was at the Crazy Horse for years. We met a few times, you know. How about uh, Bob Bromson? Bob Bromson, very good. I mean, I was in uh, Hanover, uh, EOP, the GOP did. Uh, uh, he lived close by. He came to visit a couple of times. Bob Bromson was a very good friend. Now, at what point did you start working professionally? So you're 13, you're being trained by your uncle. Was he the one that gave you the name Dieter Tasso? And what is your what is your actual given name? My family name is Krakow, K-R-A-K-W, like the Polish city, like the, mm-hmm. the Pope came from Krakow. That's the same spelling, even, uh, Dieter Krakow. But uh, the name Tasso, uh, we changed the name a couple of times. Dieter Jung and Otero, his name was Otto. So Otero used to be a, a very famous uh, dancer in, in, in the 20s. And he said, that sounds good. Dieter, <laughs> Dieter Jung and Otero, we, we called ourselves for a while. But the name Tasso was given to me by a acrobat the name was gundi three gundis there were three uh, like like those the ones that paint themselves gold and silver mm-hmm. you know those kind of acrobats yeah like hand balancers yeah yeah they were they were three excellent uh, their name was gundi and this guy says you know if you call if you call that boy tasso and uh, nobody forgets the name because it's in french it's tas in spanish it's tasa in german it's tasso tasse that's the name of the cup Mm-hmm. So nobody will forget that then I came to America and I didn't want to call myself Cup, so it was a little stupid. So, <laughs> <laughs> But but in, in three languages, uh, the name Tasso is close to a cup. 
Well, let's talk about this famous trick. We're talking about the stacking up of the cups and saucers, kicking from your foot and catching them on your head. I believe that Fairy Mater was the first person to do that trick. Where did you see it first? Why did you decide to, to sort of do that stunt? You're right. You're right. Terry Mader was a little research. You probably did more research than anybody else. <laughs> he was, but but he was long gone by the time we came into the picture. Mm-hmm. And the first one after the war in Germany was Rudy Horn. Yeah, he was, rich, rich, he was a fantastic juggler too. Did you ever see him? One of my favorites. Never in person, but I've seen videos. His yeah. seven ball force bounce, the five ball back crosses, uh, the yeah, ring you- juggling, amazing. He was an amazing juggler besides the cups and saucers, but he did the cups better than anybody, and he did it on the unicycle. And then for a while, he used real glasses, real champagne glasses. Yeah. Uh, it was really amazing. Anyway, but I never seen him, and I never heard of him when I started the cups. But I did cigar boxes, and I did uh, top hats, and I did uh, when I was about 16 years old, and I did them pretty good at those years, but I never could get into the palace. Uh, the director of the palace, his name was Director Lupo. He said, no, your boy, he talked to my uncle. He said, your boy isn't ready for the palace. He isn't ready for the palace. And all of a sudden, Siki Manulescu was a juggler also with cups. And he was the first one who did 10 cups, mm. a pyramid with 10 cups. Yeah. And he the palace. He, he was very good with the cups. I mean, it was new. Nobody seen it before. It was, it was an amazing trick. But he did the cigar boxes and the, and the hats and all that, and he did them lousy when I was <laughs> I was 16 years old. I thought, oh my God, the guy is lousy. Just because of the cups, he's in the palace. Naturally, the act was fantastic. No comparison. But I did. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't even do, I couldn't come close to him anyway. But as I went home after I seen the act, he was the second act on the show. And as soon as he was finished, I went home. And I always started practicing. When I saw a juggler, I went home and I started practicing. And I told my uncle, I said, look, the guy is in the palace just because of damn cups. You know, can't you build me those cups? Can you make? And he was a pretty good guy building props, my uncle was. So he did with paper mache and, and glue and all that. He made the saucers. The cups were real. We, we took them from the, uh, the same size cups you could find in, in the restaurants and all that. But we couldn't put the cups and saucer together because they would splinter, you know, mm. and the piece would fly in the audience. Yeah, you get through. So he made the saucers out of paper mache and stuff. And I started practicing. That's how I started because of Siki Manulescu. I never heard of Woody Horn, I got to say that. But later on, naturally, I knew about Woody Horn. And when you started, you did it on the ground? Just... Uh... Well, yeah, we, we all did it on the ground, you know, yeah. that was the idea, until Woody Horn went on to the unicycle. No, when he went on the unicycle, I said, I got to do something. I can't do the unicycle, but I got to do something. So they told me, well, why don't you go on the wire? Why don't you go on the slack wire? You know, but slack wire is made for juggling because you balance with your feet and the bottom half of your body balances the wire and the top stands still. You know, your head is steady. So yeah. you can keep the cups on your head. You couldn't do it on a tightrope because uh, you have the balance with the top of your body. So uh, we did the slack wire. I, I went to a friend of mine who's still my neighbor here in Sarasota. I said, can you give me a piece of wire? And we nailed it in the dressing room from one corner to the other. And I uh, make it that high so I can step on it. So we did it there and I started, put it, now put a saucer on my foot, I said to my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I started. So you, had, you hadn't watched on the wire before, the slack wire. And so you just learned that for that trick. Yeah, I never had anything to do with wire. 
matter of fact, kind of an unspoken secret, I could never walk the wire. Hmm. I could only stand on one foot and do the cup trick because that's all I studied. That's all I learned. Uh, and then I rested my right foot behind me on the wire to get a little rest on my left foot. But I could never walk the wire. Uh, I was a very lousy wire walker. Hmm. Now, that trick, I tried to learn to do stuff like that. I think I was learning to kick uh, something up onto a cigar. I think it was an umbrella up onto a cigar. And it really it killed my hip to bring my leg up that high. Mm-hmm. Did you have problems with your, your leg or your hip or your knees? Because that motion, it seems very sort of unnatural. Did you have leg problems or knee problems because of doing that trick so long? Well, yeah, after, after years and years, naturally, my left leg, which I was standing on, my knee gave out. Yeah. And I was supposed to replace that for years, but I never had the time to take off from work to have a six months pause there. So I couldn't replace it. I had to keep going. But I got shots in it. You know, first I got cortisone shots, and then they invented what they call a chicken shot. It's made from the head of a chicken. Uh, and they have another name for it, but I forgot it. <laughs> Officially, the same stuff, you know, and it kind of greases your knee. And what year did you do? uh, You do Ringling Brothers? That was in the early fifties, right? Like fifty-two through fifty-five. Was that when you were centering with Ringling Brothers? Uh, Ringling, uh, I I was there fifty-two, three, and four. Those three years I was with them, and then fifty-five we went to Cuba, and then one time fifty-six we went to South America with Ringling Brothers. That's the only four years or five years I was with the Ringling Brothers. And what year did you do the, the unicycle on the slack rope kicking up the... Because you did that for about six months or about a, a one season uh, with a slack rope, with a unicycle on the slack rope. Just on and off, I did the unicycle on the slack wire. But I fell too many times. I had too many accidents. And then I ruined the whole trick. And on the Ringling Show, they were there with a whistle, you know. All the three acts had to finish at the same time. They gave me an extra minute, maybe, because I was centering. But uh, still, if I uh, fell down too many times, then I repeated the trick too many times. One time, I missed a spoon 14 times. Oh, right. And it, it didn't blow the whistle. I was so amazed. But it was in the beginning. It was really a big, big trick at that time, the first year. How many cups were you doing at that time? You would do like 10 or 11? How many cups? Well, the average was eight. Hmm. Eight cups. Once in a while, I felt like doing ten, and I did ten. But it was uh, actually it was too repetitious, so I cut that out again. I went back to uh, eight at the ringing show. And then what did you kick up? You kicked up a bowl and then a spoon. Was that the last two objects? Well, on the end, uh, yeah, I had a like a teapot, and uh, what I did is I threw the teapot on the a little bit too far over. On purpose. Oh, right, right. And it hit the saucer. It hit the saucer on the back, and it brought the saucer down from there. And I caught both the teapot and the saucer on my back. Mm. And then, uh, like, it was an accident. I mean, people went, uh, so then I repeated the trick, and I did it. But when you, when you, when you, as you know, as a juggler, if you do something on purpose, you better be sure you can make it the next time, you know, otherwise. Yeah, yeah especially if you make a, a, an accident on purpose, an intentional drop. You better be pretty sure that you can you can do it. Did you ever drop the whole stack of cups, like the whole ten or eleven cups? Oh, oh yeah, many a times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my problem was on the beginning. It's a funny story. When I first started out in Berlin, I could hardly do four or five cups, uh, and I came to a movie house where they hired us outside Berlin, 
and there were big posters on the wall. Dieter Tasso, uh, or Dieter Jung, whatever the name was, is going to do 10 cups and saucers uh, pyramid. And I couldn't even do five. <laughs> I couldn't even do four. It was terrible. Oh, I sweat. And what happened is I dropped them all. I was so nervous. I them all. And I started over again. From the one, two, three, four, five. I dropped them again. I started over again. One, two, three. Until I finally realized, gosh, I put them together, put them on my head, and continue for where I left off. That's <laughs> right. what I did from then on. But before that, when I had to start over again three, four times, they nearly started throwing tomatoes in the heaven. Yeah. Yeah, pick it up from where you left off is probably better. Now, your record was 14 cups, is that correct? 14 cups? Yeah, 14 was my record. I did that uh, in a show. In rehearsal, I did it once in a while, but uh, I did it once or twice in a show, 14 cups. It was kind of unhappiness after a while, but then all of a sudden, after after eight or nine or ten, all right, then they started again. Oh, another cup. Oh, another cup. Then it got exciting again. But I didn't do that for long. It was too bad on my knee, too. And so before Ringling Brothers, we kind of skipped over. What were your first professional engagements? Well, we worked uh, in Berlin. We worked uh, 14-day bookings and 10-day bookings and one week here and then one-nighters, mostly around Berlin. And then uh, outside Berlin, we went to cities like Halle. They had variety shows in those years, and we did those things. All around Berlin until I finally made it into the Circus Ballet. There was a big, big, big name circus in Berlin. And he was standing about three blocks away from the Friedrichstadtpalast, from the palace I was talking about, which I couldn't get into. And there, my act was pretty good already. There was like, a, I started in 47, 48, 49, there was 49. And then the palace guy came over and he looked at the act and he said, Oh, you're getting better, you're getting close. But you're too close to the palace. I can't hire you. <laughs> right. Then he, he couldn't take me because I was right across the street. Yeah, in the circus. Yeah. So it took a couple more years, and he hired me. And he hired me in 1952 in January. I was there, and that's when Ringling, one of the Ringling brothers, saw me, and hired me for the stage. Now I've talked to people who started in clown school and, and were clowns on the Ringling Brothers show. They talked about their very small accommodations and the poor pay. What was it like touring as a juggler in those days with the circus? With the Ringling Show, well, we were lucky. Uh, we were on a train. We lived on a train, and there was the tent. We we worked on a tent in those years. The tent, they discontinued in 56, I think. Yeah, 56 was the last year in the tent. And we lived on a train, and I was lucky we had a stateroom because it was my aunt, my uncle, Another little boy who came over from Germany later, and me. So they gave us like what they call a stateroom, which was a little room which had a water faucet in there and uh, and uh, bunk beds. Uh, it wasn't like uh, some people lived in uh, bunk beds. Period. And then right. the whole the whole uh, wagon was like either girls or boys. And did you tour the United States? You tour Europe? Where did you work with the circus? With Ringling, only over here. Well, with Ringling, was Ringling just United States, or did I don't know? Did they also have a European unit as well? Mm, there was a European unit later on. They tried that, but it didn't last long. I think it was only about three months, four months, and then it folded because they made a big mistake. The Ringling went over to Europe, and they did it in the '30s, and it was a big hit way back. Ringling was a big name all over the world, but they tried it again in the '60s. Was it? I think. 
And what they did, they hired the acts from Europe. So all the acts they had in the show, the people already saw. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was like me and so on. So it didn't last long. They, they folded. And what was your act like in the circus? Did you, you did more than just the, the wire with the cups. Did you also do cigar boxes and the top hats? Yeah, I opened I opened with the tennis racket, the, the devil sticks. Then I did the, the top hats. Then I did the cigar boxes, real quick, like uh, everything, real short, like. And then I went on a wire. The riggers brought up the wire right and left. And then my uncle took the wire and walked it from one uh, hook to the other, hooked it on it, and I went on it. And then that's when I started the cups. And what was your practice like? Did you practice every day? Did you want to continue adding more stuff to the act? Or did you, once you had the act set, was it just more a matter of practicing that act? No, I never stopped practicing. It always it, it was always uh, continuous. Then I put a teapot on there. Then for a while I had a little electric cooker. It wasn't an electric. It was an electric cooker. I put underneath the teapot, and then I put some uh, fire on it. I, I threw a, a lit match up there with my foot, and the thing lit up and all. That. But that's all things we tried out. And we did it for a week or something, and then we, we, we cut it out again. It didn't work. We just stuck with the teapot and the spoon on the end. And after a while, I found out that the teapot was a big, large object that you could see in those big buildings. But the spoon was too small, so I cut out the spoon after a while. And I also had a lump of sugar, hmm. but it was too small for those big buildings. And what about your physical conditioning? Did you feel you needed to do exercise to stay in shape for this trick? It sounds like a very physical stunt. Were you also doing physical training? No, I didn't have to. I was tired in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> you just worked. You just worked. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just thought about the act. And but if you do the hats and the boxes and the, and the tennis racket twice a day or three times a day, at the the Tommy Bartlett show we did three shows a day, seven days a week, in rain or shine. You know, I mean, I didn't do any training. <laughs> Practicing a little bit, yeah. Well, let's pick up your career after the circus. You're done in the circus in the mid-50s. Uh, where'd you go after that? And when did you start with the uh, with the crazy horse? Yeah, I, I did the circus act on the wire in shrine circuses later on, you know, after I left the Ringling Show mm -hmm. and big buildings. And uh, I went uh, on the road with Gene Autry for a while and uh, Jimmy Dean and uh, stuff like this. But by then I didn't do the wire anymore. I, I dropped the wire. And it was a tough thing to drop because people knew me on the wire and the cops. And when I told the agents, oh, I don't want to do the wire anymore, they said, are you nuts? That's your act. Yeah, you can't do it. Or even I substituting a small wire rigging instead of the big, large wire. That was tough already. So I had to do it. But one time I had the television show, which I repeated quite often. I forgot his name. <laughs> That's a terrible thing. I'm getting old, I tell you. An American show or a European show? No, no, it was here. It was here, a uh, television show. Uh, and uh, he hired me about four or five times. Uh, one time it was from Las Vegas. And the first time they hired me, they said, uh, how do you want to set up your trapeze? <laughs> and I said, trapeze, a trapeze? Well, I realized they don't know what it was all about, the slack wire. So I said, I'll tell you what, I found my chance to drop the trapeze, <laughs> to drop right. the wire. And I said, I'll tell you what, I do the act without the trapeze. And if you like it, we do it. And if you don't like it, I put the trapeze in later on. So he said, okay, do it. So we did the rehearsal, and I did the cups for the first time in, in years on the ground. And he said, oh, the, the act is perfect. Leave it like this. Leave it like this. That's great. <laughs> so ever since then, I dropped the wire, and I did the act louder. And when did you start uh, talking and adding uh, verbal comedy? 
Was that in the 60s? Well, I worked at the Blinstrups in, in Boston. There was a nightclub in Boston. Uh, they hired a lot of acts, a lot of uh, show acts like us. And I worked with Pat Boone at the time mm-hmm. and an acrobatic team. It was like a Risley act. And one of the guys made a mistake and he went to the mic and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I goofed. <laughs> I kind of liked it. Yeah. So I copied it. Next time I dropped a cup or something, I went to the microphone and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I goofed. <laughs> then I dropped it again. I went to the mic and I said, I goofed again. And I got laughs. I said, so I kept it in there. And then, then it took me naturally months and months and months to add the second sentence. And that, uh, mm-hmm. But it kept going. It kept growing like that. Did you enjoy that better? Or did you feel that once you were on the ground, you were like a sigh of relief that you were able to put that behind you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanted to get rid of that wire for years because my knee hurts. And and I always had to schlep the wire around, you know. I had to carry it around all the time. It was a, it was a big rigging. I mean, it was nothing compared to circus acts, but it compared to nightclub acts. And, and you guys, you know, who have three clubs and three balls and something yeah. like Chris Kramer. I always envied Chris Kramer, three balls, three heads and three, three boxes, and that's it. So that, that was my aim, so to speak. Well, I, saw, I saw a picture of you from the Globetrotters, and I thought, wow, what a cool, portable slack wire rig. Because you had this really nice, uh, small slack wire setup, but still quite a bit to schlep around. Yeah, you know what it was? It was a hammock. It was from yeah. Sears. I <laughs> bought it. Matter of fact, I had that Sears. I just chromium plated it. That's all. You know, it was green when you bought it from Sears. Matter of fact, one time I had a club date in Los Angeles, the theater, the big theater, the big, uh, the shrine temple, mm-hmm. the shrine theater. Remember there was a big shrine temple? Yeah. They always said, yeah, they still got it. I mean, so I had that uh, with, with three, two or three big stars and I had to fly out there. I didn't even take my rigging along. I just took the wire along and I went to Sears when I got there and I bought that rigging. And I put it on stage. It was green. It wasn't chromium plate. Okay. And I did my act because I knew it was the same rigging that I yeah. had. I did my act and then I left it standing in the dressing room when I flew back home. Now, someone told me a story about you leaving something else. Did you ever leave your all your cups and saucers in a cab and then forget about them? Yeah. Why'd you hear that? Uh, David Kane, the juggling historian, told me that. Oh, yeah, David. Yeah. <laughs> I was working he knows everything. A, yeah. I, I was working in Las Vegas. I was at the Hacienda there. And they had a break for about three or four days for Christmas or something. So I wanted to fly home to Sarasota and, and do something. And when I came back, I had my little bag where the cups were in there, the cigar boxes were in there, everything was in there. And a camera too was a, was a damn good camera, Leica or something. And my tax papers were in there and all that. And that bag I left in a taxi. So I come home, I come into the in my apartment in Las Vegas. I said, oh, my God, my act. I forgot my act. I called the taxi. Well, naturally, I couldn't get it anymore because of the camera, I think. They got that camera. Uh, back yeah. back. So yeah. here it was about traps. Luckily, I had another set of cups which were aluminum, but I never worked with them before. But I bought them years ago, and I thought I better take them along because I'm going to go to Tommy Bartlett show in the summer, and I work outside, and I need heavier cups. And the aluminum might not 
being so sensitive to the wind. Yeah. So I'm in another bag and then a suitcase. But I didn't have the first saucer, you know, with the ring that sits on your head. Mm. But a few other things were missing. My balls, my wooden balls, which I hit together when I hit the overball on my head. And a cigar box I didn't have either. So I had to go out on the first day in Las Vegas and I bought a cigar box and I bought this. Luckily, there was a, there was a an uh, engineer in the bottom of the hacienda there, and he made my balls real quick. Uh, he, he, the wooden balls, he put them on the on one of those uh, turn turntables and all that. Sadly, anyway, yeah, yeah. I could do the act, uh, and I took a rope and and then glue, and I made it, put it on the first saucer so it fits on my head. It was tough, but but I made it. I did the show. Let's talk about some of your TV appearances. You did Ed Sullivan uh, how many times? About five times in Ed Sullivan? Yeah, four or five times, I think. I'm not exactly... I did, uh, matter of fact, uh, the first time I did it, I came to America in 52 on the Ringling Show in April. April 1st, we landed in New York. And a week later, I was on the Ed Sullivan Show. Wow. And I didn't know what was Ed Sullivan, what was television, what I, I didn't speak English. I didn't know what it was, but the rickers set up my ricking. Uh, and when I got there, you know, I just went on a wire and I did my act over there. And uh, it was the first time that the Cubs were seen in the States here. Yeah. And that's really one was, was proud of it. That, uh, I didn't get any money either. <laughs> the Ringley should probably got paid or the Ringley should just got it for the publicity. Right. Uh, several times afterwards. Uh, I played about four times or five times. And how did you like working on television? Did you feel it was... Uh, more nerve-wracking? Yeah, a little bit more, sure, especially at Sullivan, because uh, everything was short. Cut, 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 cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't do this, you can't do this. And uh, if I dropped the spoon, and I had a habit of dropping at least at once or twice the spoon on the end, I didn't do it on purpose on the beginning because uh, I had a hell of a time uh, doing it afterwards, doing it straight. Right. I was nervous, like, heck, yeah, sure. Let's talk about some of your long-term engagements, because you have a couple engagements that, I don't know if they're records, but let's start with the Crazy Horse in Paris. You were there for 22 years. How did you get that engagement, and what was it like working at the Crazy Horse? Yeah, to tell you the truth, actually, I was never a big moneymaker in the business, you know, like some of you guys. I don't mean it in a bad way. I'm not so proud of that some acts as jugglers made it and made big money. I never made big money. But luckily, I got the two bookings. There was the Tommy Bartlett show and the Crazy Horse. And they were steady. And uh, you probably know, like anybody else, when you're steady and you can put money away steady, that, that's the only time you save. You, you make a big money one day and then you blow it again the next day. And uh, But that was a steady thing. And, and, and that was my luck in my life, I guess. The Crazy Horse... Uh, somebody else was there. Wes Harrison was hired, and his wife. I have to uh, have to give her credit. She said, "Why to the agent? Why don't you take a look at Dieter Tasso? You know, he's on a Tommy Bartlett show there, and he might be good for the crazy horse." So the guy said, "I want to see the act. Can you do an act in New York?" Can you do? Well, I didn't have anything in New York, uh, <laughs> but. Through another agent, we got in contact with the band leader from the Ed Sullivan show. He knew my act from years ago. Forgot his name at the moment. I <laughs> forgot the thing. Anyway, he booked me on uh, on a night one nighter in the one of Astoria. But since I didn't belong to the show, since I was booked in there, and I I didn't get any money either. Uh, we just did it so the guy could see the act. Right. So I had to work before the show. I had to work before the dinner. Uh, matter of fact, I worked in the middle of the dinner. And the guy said, 
afterwards he said, you stop the people from eating. You're, you're pretty good at <laughs> Yeah. The guy went out there in front of the audience and they were eating and he said, ladies and gentlemen, here's Dita Tasso. And I had to go out there and I do my act. And luckily the guy from Paris made it. He came over at that time. There was the Condor. Remember the Condor? Yeah, the, the airplane? First airplane that was, uh, it flew in four hours from Paris to New York. Yeah, supersonic jet. Yeah, he took that, and he had a French hotel that he stayed in New York mm -hmm. all the time. And uh, he came over for that one show, and I was shaking. I was like, oh, I hope he's down there now. Now that I did all that crap there, you know, we did the show and all that. I hope he's uh, And he was down there. He watched the act. And afterwards, he said, uh, you're a pretty good actor. You stopped the people from eating. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> he said, all right, you, you want to come over to Paris? And I said, well, the problem is I'm booked. I was booked on ships at that time, cruise ships. Yeah, and he said, "Well, what do you have? To, you have me come from Paris all the way over here, and now you're booked." <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm gonna uh, take a week off from the ships. Uh, I could move them because I was constantly on the ships. I was on the Royal Caribbean line when they only had one ship, Rosa Song of Norway. I think I must have been the first juggler. Matter of fact, I, I know I was the first juggler on the Royal Caribbean line on the cruise ships. But you didn't do like what they do now. Like now, they do like ninety-minute show." Were you just doing your act, or did you have a longer show on the cruises? No, no. At that time, I only they had that three-act show. Hmm. It was me, then they had a singer, and then they had a comic. Then there was always a three-act show, that's all. And it was small. The, the, the ship was only 600 people. So they had the, the showroom uh, had a capacity for 300 people. So we had to do two shows, first and second sitting. And then we were finished with that ship. And we were halfway through the week, we had to fly to another ship and, and do the same thing over again. Over there. Yeah. There was always a core Caribbean line. What year did you start at uh, Crazy Horse? At the Crazy Horse was um, 80. Yeah, 80, beginning of 80. Now, the Crazy Horse also has, is known for having a very low ceiling. How high was the ceiling height at the Crazy Horse? <laughs> the ceiling was so low that he couldn't get a juggler. He always wanted to get a juggler. So he had Chris Kramer there for three days, and then he quit. <laughs> then he had Schweitzer there for, I think, not even a week or something. Then he quit. He couldn't get a juggler. So when I went in there, he built me a little little stage in front of the stage, which was a little bit lower than the stage itself. And I saw that, but the problem was, if I go on there and I do the cups, the people are sitting right next to me. If I drop one of my aluminum cups, I killed it. <laughs> I couldn't do that. So I said, uh, Monsieur Bernardin, I try my act on stage. And I did my act on stage. I did everything in my knees. I really bent wow. down. Because when I had five cups on my head and I stretched on my toes, I hit the ceiling. <laughs> That's how low it was. And behind me, there was a, there was maybe a meter. It was maybe three feet. And then I, I hit the curtain over there. And behind the curtain was a wall. I mean, a concrete wall. Matter of fact, I always did that joke. I went back there and I touched the curtain. I said, oh, pardon, mademoiselle. I said, they're all over the place. You know, it's not easy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it was very low, but that was my luck because he couldn't get another juggler to do that gig, so he kept me for years and years. Yeah, 22 years I have in my notes. That's quite a, quite a run. Oh, yeah, it was great. And the, the thing was, at one time, he gave me a five-year contract and he gave me a 10% raise every year automatically without nice. me asking for it yeah the salary was pretty good to begin with so i was pretty happy and i bit my teeth together it wasn't easy i mean you did seven days a week you did two shows a night and three on the weekend it wasn't an easy gig 
but uh, I, I did it, and I'm, I'm happy I did it. He was like my second father, the guy. He was great. What acts did you work with? you remember any of the other uh, variety acts or celebrity acts that came through? We have uh, Finn Jean, George Carl was one of the mm. big acts. Love George Carl, to, yeah. Yeah, and for years. He, he was great. He was so strong. He was the strongest act on the show. He was always the closing act. There was three acts, uh, like a magician, then uh, something like me, and then then something like George Carl. Uh, uh, many a times I was the closing act because uh, there was nothing stronger. But he was always, when he was on the show, when George Carl, we, they switched acts all the time. Two or two months, this guy, one month, this guy, three months, that guy. So one time he, uh, George Carl came to me and said, Dita, you have to close. I have to work early because I got a club date in, in Paris. <laughs> so I said, all right. I did. And I, I worked after him and I nearly died. I mean, it was he was so strong, the guy. It was, it was fantastic. Oh, so funny. I mean, we worked with him twice uh, towards the end of his career. And unique act. But when he hit, I don't think any act was funnier. The laughs he got was amazing. amazing clown. I saw him on television a couple of times here. He killed the show. Yeah. Yeah, he killed. Well, I didn't really get to know him. Did you Did you find him to be an interesting man, or what was your experience with him as a person? Very interesting. He was he was known. He was drinking a lot. <laughs> he was so tired by the business. He wanted to go home, and he had bad luck. He had a son who was uh, doing all kinds of things when he was gone. He burned the house down in Indiana. He had, uh, and he, he had a tough life. And uh, he was drinking like crazy, and he did crazy things, and he used bad language backstage. <laughs> Matter of fact, when I came home, uh, my wife said, "Oh, George Carl is on the show, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> you picked up a few turns. Now, didn't his son try to do his act too? His son tried to do his act, like George Carl Jr. or something like that. I don't know if he did or not. I, I really don't know. I don't think it worked. It didn't work. Yeah, there was some great acts on there. There was. Well, it's uh, the big ventriloquist. Uh, uh, all right, all right. Uh, Senor Wences. Senor Wences? Yeah, Senor Wences. All right, all right. <laughs> Not with me. He was there before I was there. You know, but he was there for years. And he was so proud that he had Senor Wences. And he hired them. He, uh, Wes Harrison, the sound effect guy, you know mm -hmm. him? Yeah, because he, he worked with you at the, the Dells. I heard stories of him making a lot of money there because he had a, a an album of his sound effects that he would sell after the shows. Oh, and we heard he, he made a killing. The he West made Harrison. a killing. I helped him sell him after he made a killing. I tell you, people bought it like crazy. Now, didn't he give some of the money back to the the, the show itself? And he made so much money that the, the producers loved it. Yeah, he gave twenty percent to the show. Yeah, yeah. But even at that, we all did. When I sold T-shirts and uh, or books or something, we gave twenty percent back. Yeah. Well, let's plug your book. We're not at the end of the podcast. But let's give your book a plug because. You have a book available on Amazon, and the title is "You Like It, I Do It Again." I guess that's one. Of, that's a famous line from your show. Yeah, that was my line because uh, when I missed the trick, uh, or when I did a trick, I started out with putting the head on my nose, you know, and uh, people applauded, and I said, "Oh, you like it? I do it again." And I kept doing it through the whole act, and it, it, it kind of caught on. The, the kids on the street when they saw me, "Hey, you like it? I do it again." <laughs> Matter of fact. Uh, the director of the show, the, the guy who owns the show, we went up to Rochester Clinic uh, with some problems. And the doctor said, I'm, I'm reading your, your, your material and you own the Tommy Bartlett show, right? 
And he said, you like it? I do it again. He had the first thing he said to him was, you like it? I do it again. So his wife and him, he said, you know, it's funny. From 30 years of being up there with all the acts we had, he quoted you. It was kind of nice. Well, I ordered it. Unfortunately, I did not get it in time for the interview, but I'm sure I'll be getting it uh, next week, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Let's talk about your other long-term gig, another hard job, because I went there. I never worked there myself, but I saw it. And I thought, wow, that's a tough place to work. It was a Tommy Bartlett's water show in Wisconsin Dells. How did you get that job, and how many years did you work there? Yeah, I was there at the same time as the, the Crazy Horse. I was there also 30 years. Something like 32 years. Of, I have to lie to you if I tell you the exact. But so you'd alternate. you do the, the Crazy Horse during the winter and then come and do the, the Dells in the summer. Is that how it worked? Exactly. I did nine months. Uh, I wow. only had one month free. There was January and with the flying back and forth from Europe and the, the driving from Wisconsin, the one month was eaten up halfway. So uh, it was pretty tough. I had to do my taxes in, in January, but I was happy. I, I, I saved a little money over the years, so that's, that's why I'm retarded now. I mean retired. <laughs> no, tell, tell everybody, what kind of show is Tommy Barlett's? Because it's an unusual show, and where you work was kind of unusual. Explain what kind of show that is to the, our audience. Uh, the first half was uh, the water ski show. It was out on the lake. The seating, did you ever see a picture of the seating and all that? Yeah, I went there. I think uh, maybe Dick Franco was working there. Nobody was performing at the time, but I got to see the, the Dells itself. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a stage in front of the lake, mm -hmm. and the second half was on stage. They did a couple of stage acts, and then they had a couple of aerial acts. And the, the aerial acts was mostly the narcs. They were there for years, longer than me even. They had Wisconsin Dells, and then they opened another show in Pitchin Forks, Tennessee, and that, the same kind of show. But uh, the lake was artificial. The lake was cut out of the ground, and they put the stage. And Tommy Butler always said he knew me. Uh, he saw me at the uh, Madison sports show for years before that. And Tommy always said, Peter, if I open my second show, you're going to be the first act I book. So when he opened the show in Tennessee, he came... I was at the Hacienda in Las Vegas at the time. He came out there and he watched the act again. And he said, Tita, I give you the contract. The Hacienda didn't want to let me go, but he didn't give me a contract. It was funny. I said, give me a contract. I was nervous kind of a guy, you know. Sure. But they didn't give me a contract. So I said, okay, in May of next year, that was like in November, I said, I have to leave you guys here. And then he said, stay with us. You know, my, my manager was uh, the manager from Siegfried and Roy. What's his name the, with the bushy hair? Oh, I don't know. Uh, we don't know him. Okay. No, that, that's out of my, my realm of knowledge. I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, there was a big famous manager in, in, in Las Vegas. And he said, Tita, stay with us because uh, you can stay here forever. Whenever uh, you're finished over here. We find a hole for you, something. You know, at that time, they used a lot of variety acts mm -hmm. all over the place. And I knew if I would have stayed there, I would still be in Las Vegas today and all that. But uh, I, I was nervous and I won the contract and they didn't give me a contract. So I said, in May, I kept saying, in, all winter long, I kept saying, in May, I got to leave you. They say, ah, you're going to stay. Ah, you're gonna stay. But then May came and I, I went to Tommy Bartlett and I stayed with them 30 years. And let's talk a little bit about the Knox. They're, they're a very famous circus family. The nerveless knocks, uh, the, right. the big sway pole. What were they like? Oh, uh, Mike is a good friend of mine. There were a couple of brothers. 
they split up later on. Eugen, Eugen Jr., he made uh, the helicopter and he, he had his brother hanging underneath doing the acrobatics underneath the helicopter. And he's still in there, so he still got helicopters. He does that privately. Uh, very nice guys. Uh, yeah, they were real, real daredevils. I mean, they would do really dangerous stunts oh, yeah. to Knox. And they still got, now, now, the, 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 there's no work anymore. I mean, all the fairs. He did a lot of fairs. He had his own show. After a while, he had two units going. His kids were doing the second unit. And he had the, the, the wheel going, the spray poles going, the, the wire with the motorcycle, the trapeze underneath there. Yeah, they're great. They're doing a great job, those guys. Now, let's talk about some of your other accolades. What year were you inducted into the Circus Ring of Fame in Sarasota? What year? That was recently, wasn't it? Uh, just within the last few years? Yeah, I got to go over here and look at this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty big honor, a big circus honor to be uh, part of the Ring of Fame. Yeah, it, it's a big thing there in Sarasota. I mean, a lot of, a lot of acts going there anyway. Oh, wait a minute. I got it. January 18th, 2000 and, uh, 2009. Oh, okay. So it's been, been quite a few years for your long uh, established yeah. circus career. That's a nice nice accolade. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then the Circus Museum in Sarasota, they gave me something. And then the amateur circus, uh, I mean, the amateur juggling guys there, they gave me a plaque. Yeah, the IJ, you're, you're an excellent winner from the IJ as well. Have you ever been to any International Juggling Association uh, festivals? I never did it because I was always booked uh, the, 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 in the summertime and, and Tommy Butler would let me go, you know. Mm. And one time they had it uh, over here, uh, not far away. And uh, they said to Tom Deal, they said, come on, we give you another couple of jugglers to, to, to let him go for one day or two. Yeah. And uh, we replace him. Tom said, no, he can't be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> Flattering, but it would have been nice for you to be able to come to one of our, our juggling conventions, our juggling festivals. Yeah, I would have loved to do it, but what can I do? They wouldn't let me go. Now, you've had a very long career. I mean, your, your, your career goes back you know, over 60 years. How do you think about the evolution of juggling? Are you someone who watches jugglers on, on YouTube and you see the new jugglers? You know, having seen so much, what do you think about the whole arc of, of juggling in your career? that you've seen? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm glad I'm not in there anymore. I'm not with them. And I couldn't compete because even in Europe, I was I was working the variety shows, you know, GOP and Wintergarten and all those. And most of the time, they had a Russian juggler in front of me. Yeah. He did like eight balls uh, backwards, you know. And all <laughs> that. They, they did tricks. I mean, it's unbelievable. The, the kids are fantastic today. I mean, I, I couldn't compete. And then and, and I had to work after them with my three balls. Yeah, excuse the expression. It was weird. He said, yeah, you can do it. You do comedy. Well, I had to. I had no choice. What what I going to do? But the kids today, they are unbelievable. Some of those. Even you guys were great. Uh, uh, and some of the acts, uh, especially the Russians, you know, especially the sort of like, like the one you mentioned a while ago, Kia. Mm -hmm. Well, there's Victor Key. There's, there's so many great Victor Russian Key, jugglers. Yeah. And there's so many great creative jugglers, uh, you know, Americans like Wes Pete and uh, some amazing jugglers. One kid I saw, I, I don't remember his name. He worked, he worked like a Marine, like, like from, he had a Navy outfit. Yeah, maybe Kublikov. He pretends he's drunk. He, he's like yeah, a drunk like sailor. He was shaking all the time. 
That guy yeah. was fantastic. I mean, he did the seven balls and eight balls. I love him. He did. He does a ten ball. He does a ten ball multiplex. So he's juggling uh, ten balls in sets of two. So it's a ten okay. ball juggle in a multiplex. Right, amazing. Right, amazing. Right. Yeah. And he does it like nothing, like 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 don't bother me, you know. <laughs> great today. Kids are great today. There's no question about it. Have you officially retired, Dieter, or are you still? Are you would you still work, or have you left the stage now? No, I'm I'm retired because uh, I I had to I could still work because uh, the last year I worked in Tommy Bartlett I did hardly any juggling anymore. I didn't do the cups anymore. Oh. I only did uh, I closed with the hats the first routine on the end, but it was mostly uh, stand up. Right. Not people liked it. I mean, it was good. I always look at acts. I look at like a Francis Brun, especially acts that had a long career. And a lot of them sort of tried to do their act for their whole sh their whole run, and they kind of became less and less and less because they weren't able to do this the stunts they used to do. Right. You're one of the few acts that really transferred and changed, and when you added comedy, you became even more successful. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for you, Dieter. A lot of admiration for your career. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was uh, lucky. I call it because. Uh... Even the last year on the Tommy Bartlett show, when I hardly did any juggling anymore, I think the act was stronger than before <laughs> because the comedy was so strong, you know. Well, you have, uh, you have charisma. You have a special uh, humorous, I don't want to say humorous look, but you're, you're a funny man. And when you come on stage, you have a, a twinkle, you know, a twinkle in your eye. And people respond to that. Yeah, I was lucky the uh, the people accepted me and accepted uh, the personality, and uh, I got away with it. Thank you. Well, we've come to the end of our podcast. Our hour went by very quick. Now you've had such a long, wonderful career. Uh, could you give us some advice, maybe for some jugglers now, especially as a very difficult time in the business? But what does someone need to be successful and have a career as long as yours? What kind of advice can you leave uh, the other jugglers? that you learned in your many, many years as a performer? Well, we always used to say practice, 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 you know. But uh, now it's not practice anymore. Now it's more or less connection. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, yeah, uh, you have to uh, get together with the right, uh, maybe it's managers. Maybe uh, today we got great managers who handle them. I don't know. But I noticed that the people who were successful, like Michael Davis and all that, they started with managers, right? And they, they got them into the right places at the right time. Naturally, they had the act uh, to follow up, but it, practice alone doesn't do it anymore. Well, I remember Francis Brown used to say, without practice, there is nothing. And I always like that. Without practice, there is nothing. Because you have to have an act first, right? No matter what your connections are, if your act isn't good, you know, you won't work. Oh, you have to have the act. You have you to have, have the, the act. act. Uh, goes without saying, naturally. Sure, sure. And uh, that's practice, naturally. Yeah. Well, it goes without saying that your act was very, very successful. You, you have a wonderful place in the history of juggling. And I'm so proud that you were part of our podcast here today on Drop Everything. And I'm honored to have you as one of my guests. Thank you so much, Mr. Dieter Tasso. Thank you, Dieter. Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much, too. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast number 88. I certainly enjoyed talking with Mr. Dieter Tasso and hearing those wonderful stories from his legendary career. Before you go, check out juggle.org to find out about the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Go to Amazon and look for You Like It, I Do It Again, the story of Mr. Dieter Tasso. Now go out there and drop everything.
except when you're juggling.